continuing the Matthew series. Um, and I'm going to start with an opening prayer. Uh, come Holy Spirit, please fill our hearts and our minds and our ears um, as, we explore your, as we explore your scripture and as we receive whatever you have for each of us this morning. Um, so we have been in Matthew for a good long time and we have slowly worked our way through the genealogies just appreciating and savoring all of the stories that are embedded in it there. And we have finally made it through Christmas and into Matthew 2. So, <laughs> and I want to continue, one of the things that I love about the pattern we've set there is I want to continue to spend time in the Hebrew scriptures that form the background for the narratives here so that we are immersing ourselves in the kind of context that helps make the text of Matthew so incredibly deep and rich. And there's tons of wordplay and references and layers and layers and layers of meaning that are there in the text. And I can geek out about some of that, and I want to geek out on some of it this morning because I think it, it lends to the credibility and the beauty of Scripture to appreciate how it works in its place and in its time. But, do I have the slide on the... Uh... But if I'm uh, getting into that stuff and you're wondering why is Dan talking about the number 14 a ton again? It's really just all about this. So Jesus is lion and lamb. Jesus is king and refugee. Jesus is strong and gentle, just and merciful, differentiated, connected, and one and many. He brings together these lion-like features and these lamb-like features in a beautiful and profound way that I think challenges us and that prepares us for the type of work that we do as a community in all kinds of ways, welcoming all sorts of people from all around the world and even letting ourselves be welcomed into the presence of God. And so this morning, what I'm hoping to do is really talk about these aspects of Jesus and how Jesus is revealed in this way in Matthew 2 to prepare us for next week. I'm going to go in more detail on what we're doing with One Good Home, which is our immigrant and refugee ministry. And so we're starting with an encounter with Jesus as king and refugee. And then we're moving into an exploration of the work that we've seen God inviting us into and continuing to invite us into more deeply. Okay. I want to start with this image of lion and lamb, and it's going to be the center of what I talk about in a lot of ways. And so you think about how you bring together these symbols, right? Because they could mean all kinds of things. And I know I've had experiences where I understand this God this way. I have had experiences in church where I've been presented God in this way, where here's how the lion and lamb are brought together. Jesus is a powerful, devouring beast who will crush you and pounce on you and eat your guts out but he's kind of fuzzy when it happens, right? That's <laughs> like one way to bring these things together. Um, but we could also bring it together in other ways that I think are, are better. And so I, I, don't, you know, I don't really see him having the head of a lion in this spiritual analogy sense we're going into, right? But the, the lion side speaks to that he's the king, he's the lion of Judah in its context. He is in fact the head of a government which is strange, and it it's, was confusing then, and it's remained in some ways deeply confusing to us for the last 2,000 years what it means that he is the head of a government who is also lamb-like, meaning he doesn't use force or coercion or violence uh, or cruelty or any of the sorts of things that 
governments then and now continue to make routine use of. And so, and this is important that he has, he has real power. He has real capacity. He can set boundaries in a way. He can do these sorts of things, but that it is so deeply rooted in an absolute gentleness and an absolute love, an unconditional love, and that it is an outpouring of that love that is the power of Jesus. And so it's this very particular way of bringing these things together. In a way, his lion-likeness is held inside of his lambness. Does that make sense? Like the lambness is bigger than the lionness in a certain kind of way. Um, but that doesn't mean he's weak. Um, and I think this is important because also, as king and refugee, I know for myself, as someone who hasn't experienced the kind of intense vulnerability that's involved in being a refugee, where the government system has collapsed or has turned against you violently, maybe persecuting you uh, in very serious ways, because I have never had that exact experience. In my own spiritual life, it's often been easy to only sort of anchor in the lamb side, because I can take the fact that my government basically isn't actually trying to kill me, at least, for granted, right? And so the power side, I, there's a movement away from power towards vulnerability and gentleness, which I think is, in a way, good and deeply appropriate for people who are in that situation. At the same time, if you actually are dealing with that level of vulnerability, and you're dealing with the kind of desperate needs that we uh, have the blessing to be able to help people with in some ways as a community, you need power. You, you absolutely need power to come and protect you and rescue you and be there for you. And so that lion side, that power side, that king side, is also really important to hold and to integrate without misunderstanding Jesus as a devouring beast. So the rest of this we'll explore in an ongoing way, and, and the bottom parts of this I'll explore in some more detail next week and touch on some here. But what I'd like to do in this next chunk is just really get into a lot of scripture. And I really love the Bible. I get super excited about it. And so a lot of this is just going to be me reading the Bible and saying a few things about a few passages. Uh, specifically, so we're going to read some of the background. We're going to read some of Exodus. We're going to read some of Genesis. And we're going to read some of Jeremiah that forms the background for Matthew 2. And then we're going to read a chunk of Matthew 2. And I want to spend time on the context so that when we hear these notes in Matthew 2, we hear the symphony of references that Matthew is playing with, they're at the top of our mind and we can feel some of the references and the, and the narratives uh, that are being woven together to tell us that Jesus is this. First, just a little context before we get into Exodus. So we've gotten through the genealogy, and Matthew makes a big point of saying that there's 14 generations, and 14 generations, and 14 generations. And so it's not really reasonable to think that it's just arbitrary. And the generations aren't exactly 14 in all cases. One of them is like 15. But Matthew is still emphasizing this number 14. It's like 14 in round terms. He, he's, he wants to make us think about 14. And so there, there is some reason for it. And I think that the most commonly accepted scholarly reason is that the word David is, is also the number 14, or it adds up to 14. Uh, Hebrew letters are also numbers, which gives rise to this whole thing called gematria. 
And so in a way, by Matthew saying 14, 14, 14, he's saying David, 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 meaning king, 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 lion, lion, lion. But also, generations are talking about time. And Jesus is also an Exodus refugee. He's part of the Exodus and refugee story that forms the heart of Passover. And Passover, if you want to know when it occurs, it occurs 14 days after the start of the month of Nisan. And so the 14 would also be, especially if you're talking about time, a really ready reference to Passover. And so Matthew is also saying, and this isn't as widely accepted by scholars, but I've uh, presented to some people and they thought it made sense. So I think Matthew is also saying, Passover lamb, Passover lamb, Passover lamb. Jesus tells the, Matthew tells the story of Jesus and he's prepped this by giving us the generations and emphasizing two important things and weaving them together in that way. Now, you might say, Dan, that's a stretch. And if so, then you sound like my internal monologue. Thank you. <laughs> right. uh, and I think one of the controls on this sort of thing, when we're interpreting the scripture and really trying to say, well, is this really something that fits? Is that we also then see in the rest of the text that these things are woven together. So I'm not introducing something here that's not present throughout the rest of the text. But uh, what I'm highlighting is how deep and rich and layered the meanings are in Matthew. And I think that that's true. And it's something that makes me love the text of Scripture and what God is doing through it even more. Okay, on to Exodus, which is deeply related to Passover, which happens 14 days after the start of Nisan. So this is Exodus 1, starting in verse 8. Holy Spirit, please be in the reading of the word Please move in our hearts in ways that fit with the message this morning and in whatever other ways you want to work with these texts. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. And the intention here, it seems, is to work them to death. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puam, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. What he's trying to do in this patriarchal context is he's trying to decapitate the society. And he's trying to turn them into nothing but subject laborers. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They lied. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So now he's uh, attempting in another way to decapitate the society. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. And so death is hanging over this child, just like death will hang over the child Jesus. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And so you have Moses flowing down the river, a refugee child, in a way, fleeing from political oppression from the start, a people who are living in exile and who are not allowed to be fruitful and multiply and flourish because it scares other people. I think about this lie quite a bit, and it is kind of funny. It's a, it's a delightful turn in this story, too. And it reminds me of an experience I had. I mentioned a little bit of this last week when I shared, um, but we were having a church staff meeting in my backyard, and there's a prolonged drug deal going on, and I foolishly stood up and started filming it because I wanted, I was really um, fed up with the buyer who had also been like casing our car during my niece's um, uh, graduation party. <laughs> so I was like, I'd had it. Uh, and so I started filming them. And the guy, they pull ahead, the dealer gets out of the car and starts cussing me out and uh, threatening to shoot up our house. And he says, dude, were you filming me? Because that's messed up to film somebody. Uh, and I immediately, without thinking about it, lied. I said, no, I wasn't. I didn't, there was no thought in my mind about it. I just lied, and it was a survival-type situation. Uh, I am not proud of that. I, I am admitting that I lied to <laughs> preserve uh, safety in that situation. Um, and I think God has grace on those kinds of lies, right? Uh, and we see that here in Exodus, that there is a type of um, survival that people are thrust into, and I think God understands real survival situations. I also think that Jesus, in being the Passover lamb, who ultimately stands at the cross and is elevated to his kingly throne, on a cross, I think he leads us into a different type of courage, but it isn't, uh, it's, it's the end of a journey of growth that he invites us into, that is a challenging journey. And it's not that we look back on things like that and go, uh, that you're a terrible person, but we look forward to a Jesus who brings us to a point where we can even speak truth where it will get us killed in the right time and in the right place. That's a challenging thing to talk about seriously. Um, but I think that's part of the Christian journey with respect to these things. And it involves deep grace on the work that goes into survival. So, Genesis 35. This is verses 16 to 21. This is going to be another important reference here in Matthew 2. Jacob and his group left Bethel. Before they came to Ephrath, Rachel began giving birth to her baby. She was having a lot of trouble with this birth. She was in great pain. When her nurse saw this, she said, Don't be afraid, Rachel. You are giving birth to another son. 
Rachel died while giving birth to the son. Before dying, she named the boy Benoni. And that means son of my sorrow. So she's in anguish. So people are trying to comfort her. And in a sense, her last breath is, this is the son of my sorrow. But Jacob called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And what do you do with your right hand? You wield a sword, you grab things, you seize things, right? The right hand is, is a, a sign of power. Um, and then Benjamin becomes the root of Saul, the first king of Israel. Rachel was buried on the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob put a special rock on Rachel's grave to honor her. That special rock is still there today. Then Israel continued his journey. He camped just south of Eder Tower. Um, we've had miscarriages in this church. Um, I, I don't know anyone personally who has died in childbirth, but childbirth is still an incredibly fraught and frightening experience. It was even more fraught and frightening then. And Rachel joins in that, and her weeping becomes a central image, both of the pains of childbirth, but also the pains of birthing a society, and birthing a civilization, because she's also part of the family of Israel, um, who was Jacob, who became limping Israel. I just want to sit, actually, I feel like the Holy Spirit might actually just be doing some things in our hearts, just meditating on Rachel weeping. I want to pause and just honor that. And especially if you have had a miscarriage, or if this hits you in any particular way like that. We, we have friends who just had a miscarriage this week. This is also why it's present. But Holy Spirit, in the pains of childbirth, um, we thank you for your presence. Minister to us as we meditate on Rachel. Yeah, and so Rachel brings us the reality of the suffering of life in this incredibly intimate way. And she also then becomes a symbol for exile as well. And so when we think about the lion and the lamb, the king and the refugee, she becomes associated as well, and we'll see this in Jeremiah here, uh, with Ramah, which is a location where when Judah was conquered, they were, this was a staging ground. It was, it's close to the, um, it's close to the capital, it's close to the temple. It's just up the road from there. Rama and Bethlehem are all just right there. And this becomes a staging ground for the exile. And so Rachel then, in Jeremiah, we see a further meditation on this image. And this is something we find in Matthew, but I think we should appreciate Jeremiah on its own terms for a little bit first. Um, this is Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And the idea here is that as a people, they have been decapitated as well. This is at least the fear and the feeling. You're, you're a conquered people. You're becoming refugees. You're becoming exiles. But, and this is something that's not in Matthew, and I really want to highlight this because this is a central part 
of a theme that we find throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures and all of the prophets is that there is a direct recognition of the real anguish. And there's always a but. But this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And for people who would have been steeped in this sort of thing, Matthew is able to just cite part of it. But people would have known the prophetic pattern, which is through anguish to hope and restoration. And they would have heard the echo of this playing in the back of their minds over the rest of this passage. Okay, so we have pharaohs, we have kingly lines, we have all these sorts of things. Now we're ready to encounter Matthew 2, at least with some of the things that are being remixed. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter now. Um, one thing I want to emphasize here at the beginning is the word king, because it's up there on my thing, right? So it starts with the king side. Um, but there's also the refugee and exile and exodus side of this story. So this is Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And these would have been folks from Babylon, from the place where they were carried away, where Rachel was understood to be weeping there, right? They came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Just an aside on this. So Rahel, Rachel, uh, her name means you. She is a sheep, right, in a sense, right? Her name is also playing with this image. Uh, and you'll find in a lot of the literature of the time, there's this idea of, so is Jesus the shepherd who stands over the sheep, or is he one of the sheep who stands with the sheep? Right? He's, a, he's not only a lion shepherd, he's a shepherd sheep, right? <laughs> uh, and I think what's happening here is the move. So a shepherd, and this goes back to Pharaoh. The Pharaohs would be depicted with a shepherd's crook, right? It's this image of kingship, because people are like cattle to me. That's what it says, right? I'm the shepherd, these are my cattle. Um, they really conceived of themselves that way. But to say he is a shepherd who is a sheep is to carry this movement of solidarity, of oneness, of standing with, that makes Jesus who he is, who makes him a king who truly identifies with his people. So it makes sense that he's part of the line of sheep people like Rachel, that he would be a sheep shepherd. Then Herod... Rachel's part of, as an aside, Rachel's part of his family. Rachel's got Joseph, which is going to come up here in a second, and Benjamin as her children, but they're related. Okay, they're all Israel. Um, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
he's lying. And not for a good reason, like the, <laughs> like the women, the midwives in Egypt. He's lying so that he can get these people to help reveal his location so he can kill him, obviously. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, so Herod is doing what empire always does. And Herod, who is technically in charge of the kingdom of Judah at this point in time, because he's been appointed by the Romans, is being Pharaoh. Right? He's a type of Pharaoh. And so Egypt, in a sense, has come home. And I think we've often had experiences where Egypt comes home. As at the national level, this happens, but also in our own homes, I think we will sometimes experience violence or oppression within our own family system as well. And so Egypt isn't just a place out there. Egypt is a place that also can come home, and that's what Pharaoh is illustrating. And in attempting to decapitate the society, like Pharaoh did, he is doing what a lot of kings throughout history have always done, which is, in a way, you can think of a king as having two main jobs intergenerationally. They need to kill off their competitors, and they need to have an heir. And this is how many societies throughout history have been run, right? Uh, as an aside, Jesus doesn't kill off any competitors. He blesses and heals them. And he also doesn't have any children. Right? Instead, he creates a baptismal family. And so now there are two billion heirs to the throne of David through the family of Jesus, if you want to count it that way, which is a very secure dynasty. You're not at much risk of, of uh, having that one chopped off. Okay, <laughs> so to continue, and this is the core passage we'll especially focus in on next week. Um, because now we're moving, so we did the king part. We really nailed the king part there. Now we're going to move into the refugee part. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And I think Matthew wants us to notice that Joseph was spoken to in dreams, and we should remember another Joseph who was also spoken to in dreams, who also went into Egypt. Matthew wants us to notice this. Now, as an aside, some people look at this and they think Matthew is just making this up. Personally, I think life is weird, and I've had all kinds of experiences like this where things seem hyper-loaded with meaning. So I have no trouble believing that the situation was hyper-loaded with meaning because God speaks in and through history and that Matthew is drawing our attention to one way that it's hyper-loaded with meaning. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So when I was little, and I think some of us might still have this understanding of what the text means, I say, I hear the, the, this was fulfilled is like, okay, there was a prophet, and that prophet was like, yep, someday there's going to be a Messiah who is in Egypt for a little while, and then he comes out, and, that's, and so the prophecy that sums that up is, out of Egypt I called my son, and it's fulfilled because we like checked that box. It's easy to sort of hear it that way. In its original context, the son here, the child, is Israel itself. Right? It's the people itself. And so God says to the nation, you are my child. All of you together are my child. And Jesus here then, 
is being identified and his family is being identified with the nation. And so the fulfillment is that there is a fullness of meaning. There's an over, there, there's this brimming over with the communicative power and meaning that in some ways goes beyond what the original author could have been thinking, but that also deeply honors what they were thinking. And so the underlying concept here is that Jesus is the proper king of Judah. He's the legitimate king. And Herod, who is using cruelty and violence, just like Pharaoh, just like empire always did, is not the legitimate king. When Herod realized that he had been outlawed, outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger. I mean, in a way, I mean, Pharaoh wanted to like kill all of them, right? And so maybe he's like a little bit more merciful. Sometimes maybe like thinks of like inched forward in how merciful they are. You know, maybe Herod should get credit for that. I'm being a little sarcastic, but I think that's also dubious. <laughs> All right. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is Jeremiah remixing the story of Rachel to be a story of exile. And Matthew remixing Jeremiah, remixing Rachel to draw these threads of, of continuity. And I'm going to read again, though, because we should hear echoed something after that. I'm going to read this again. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. So there's hope, even in the despair. And if you've been saturated in the prophets, even when you encounter despair in life, you'll hear the echo of God's hope on the back end. You'll say, this is an opportunity for God's hope to enter in through God working in and through us. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And rightly so, it's a cut from the same cloth. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And there's probably some wordplay here, too, around the word Nazareth and the word branch. And so, in a sense, too, he, it would be said that he was a branch of this tree of Israel, and the, the true branch, and the root of Jesse, and David's seed, and all of that. So there's, it ends with this king emphasis, too. This is a person who has real power, which is why people with coercive and abusive power are actually afraid of this family and what they can do. And that's something that people engaged in work with the vulnerable, and that refugees need to hear, and that they need to encounter along with our encounter with the enormous and fundamental gentleness. And I just want to say, when I experience the Holy Spirit's presence, what I recognize as being, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit who carries Jesus to birth in our hearts. The Holy Spirit's presence is a presence of enormous gentleness and enormous peace and also of enormous power at the same time. 
Has anyone else had an experience? I just want to see. Has anyone else had an experience where, like, I think that's what the Holy Spirit is like? Some of us have had that. Um, and some of us have had it and aren't raising their hands, and that's fine. And some of us haven't had it, and that's also fine. But my hope here this morning uh, is that we can share a little bit of any experiences where we have encountered Jesus as lion lamb, as king refugee, as that sort of presence. Um, I'm going to open the mic here for a moment, and then we'll move into communion, where I think we will have encounters with Jesus, the refugee king, uh, in and through communion, which is, again, this Passover exile story that fills out that side, which we do literally all the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is we do it routinely for us. We're always doing it as a church. Um, but also I believe that all of life is a process of communion with the God who sustains and holds us in being. Anyways, so I want to open up the floor. Does anybody have any experiences of Jesus as refugee king that they would like to share? And if nobody does, that's totally fine. But I'm going to take a moment, I'll take a solid minute. And we can pray, and we can listen, and we can also just meditate on that if we'd like. Come Holy Spirit. And if anyone does have anything to share, help them to overcome any trepidation or anxiety about doing that. God, thank you for the work that you're doing here, and uh, we love you so much. So moving into communion time, it is, I think, especially in communion that we encounter Jesus as king who is raised to his throne on the cross. We encounter Jesus as the Lion of Judah, who is fundamentally the Passover lamb whose sacrifice protects us wherever we are in exile, who covers the doorposts of our houses and keeps us safe. Um, and in a way, this is a, St. Gregory of Nyssa meditates on this because there's, there's a part of this Passover story that's really, that I really want to go right at, is that as Passover occurs, right? The, the houses are protected, but the firstborn of Pharaoh all die, right? <laughs> this is the, the, uh, the dark side of that story. Um, and there's a long tradition of Christian interpretation which understands this as being um, spiritual language about the process of our own desires to be Pharaoh, our own desire to be dominant, to be controlling, to be to secure some measure of safety for ourselves or illusion of safety by threatening and harming people. And that that part of us is allowed to die when we come. And that that is um, something we are liberated from. And so the uh, firstborn, which is St. Gregory of Nyssa, who is central to the development of the doctrine of the Trinity and all sorts of things, those firstborn are like the first thoughts 
of evil and cruelty in us that are, uh, that are stifled as well when we join in this. And so I think we can encounter it in that way as well. So we're going to come up for communion. You can take from the cups if you want more of the security features, and you can take from the um, bread and dip it in the wine uh, if you would like to engage in that way. The bread is also gluten-free. And if you're in this area, you'll have a station here. If you're towards the middle, you'll have a station towards the middle. Towards the side, you'll have a station towards the side. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And the same way he took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we continue to do this until he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So please feel free to come up and join me.